back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. I am Beep, and you can find me on Twitter at Beepsplained. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys, you can find me at A Capital Check. So today's podcast is about Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, episode three. And this is just a reminder, we are a rewatch podcast. So we will spoil things from the entire series because we're making connections to the beautiful writing. Please, please, please make sure you've seen the entire series before you listen and then come back and play with us. We'd love to hear from you. As for Streaming Banshees, you can find us on our website at streamingbanshees.com or on Twitter at TV Banshees. Subscribe on our website so you'll never miss an update. And you can also find articles there from some super smart people about different shows. So (laughs) what we notice in this particular episode is more layers than I ever would have expected on original watch. I cried (laughs) on rewatch. I cried. And I'm not going to lie. Even this morning when I read through to refresh on our outline for the podcast, I teared up again in such a beautiful way. Like it's just this amazing story of interconnected people. And I just love Gamory so much as the kind of stand in grandmother for everybody. It appeared early on that's just kind of who she was in the town. But to see the depth of the relationships that have been built between obviously her and Dushik and then her and Heijin and then the three of them together and then she dies and I can't. Oh, oh I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, the thing is, is that once you know everyone's personal struggles or sort of the big sort of what I think is such a lovely metaphor and Sheha Un is so brilliant and how she is able to take sort of dental terminology <laughs> throughout this show <laughs> and turn it into life, like wisdom about life. But the toothache metaphor that nobody but you knows how painful something is. Now, when we rewatch this episode, we now know every character's inner struggle. So when we watch them sort of holding things back or fumbling towards connection, getting it wrong, reaching out again. Now that we know everyone's history, it's just so poignant. Even her. Yeah. Because she's the one that makes the comment later. Sometimes our pain is so very private. And that's physical pain. That's mental pain. It's emotional pain. It's I don't ever want to hear anyone talk about a toothache again. In I know, I know, because as you're watching the toothache metaphor is, you know, it, it kind of is this like lovely, practical, everyday way to think about the larger theme that we've been talking about that you never know what's going on with someone. And especially when you can't see it. Right. It's an inner pain. And the word ache is so perfect for it, right? Like none of, none of these characters are, we're not seeing any of them in the midst of right after a trauma, right? Mm-hmm. For some of them, you know, whether it's Heijin and her mother or Chief Hong and the loss of his entire biological family or what happened to him in Seoul, you know, these are losses that happened many years ago or with, you know, with, in the case of, Ha Zhang and her son Yi Jun, you know, the divorce is about three years old, right? Mm-hmm. So 
and and with Gamri and her family being too busy for her, whether it's her son in Seoul or her granddaughter in college in the United States, th- you know, this is an ongoing thing of life being busy, right? So all of it, describing all of all of them these inner pains as aches mm. is su- such perfect language to it to sort of it, it's so evocative of kind of that steady pain that's always there yeah we're not looking at acute incidents at this point it's this has become chronic right right and there may be times as we see with several characters in this episode the way sort of a back pain or you know a physical ache can act up you know, maybe like on a rainy day, there are things that can make it worse on some days or other days, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. And there, especially now that, you know, I think this episode, for example, with Heijin did a really good job of, of sort of hinting to us and giving us in limited flashbacks why she was sometimes reacting, you know, sometimes a little harshly in some situations that the, the rewatch of not only why she's putting clothes on as armor or why she reacts the way she does to a maternal figure, not taking care of her physical health Mm. and why chief Hong is so empathetic and noting all of these small moments to basically arrive at the conclusion when it comes to Heijin, no, you're not okay. It comes from his own experience with loss and the empathy that he's that it's given him. So, yeah, this this episode is really an exercise in sort of all of these scenes are steeped in this toothache metaphor. And now that we know the ache, um, they're just really emotional to watch. Like, I thought we were just driving over a bridge talking about eating (laughs) pasta versus uh, crab ramen on a boat. And it's a lot deeper than that. The other theory that this episode introduces is the hedgehog theory. And what I love is that it is that the twist in this show is it seems at the beginning of the story that Hei Jin is the obvious hedgehog. And the theory is espoused to her by Bo Ra. And Chief Hong compares her explicitly to a hedgehog at the end of the episode. And, the you know, the first half of this series, we definitely are watching Heijin lay her spikes down, not only with Chief Hong, but with other members of the community, for example, specifically in this episode, Gamri. But the twist is Chief Hong is also a hedgehog. <laughs> it's just it's just in, in what they are uncomfortable with. So with Heijin, mm-hmm. with Heijin, it's... It's letting people in, letting them cross the line. But once she does, it's like she's emotionally all in. And with Chief Hong, he is an active member of his community. And he, <laughs> what Asian and Gamri will agree on is he is nosy and he is always sticking his nose in other people's business. But when it comes to his business, his spikes are like as sharp as they can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very much not going to share anything about himself until he's truly forced to because there's something that becomes more important to him than holding on to those secrets and that pain, which is her and the future that he could allow himself to have. Yeah. And with, you know, with that, just picking up on what you said about future, there is a quote that really hit me on rewatch, which is, which I think is, is a theme 
that is woven throughout the show in different ways, there's no future for those who don't know their history. And there are some very sort of like straightforward ways that that theme is later unfolded later on in the episode with the videotape of Gamry's television show. But the same is true for Chief Hong and Hei Zhen. They cannot get over this hurdle of planning their future together until Chief Hong, both individually and in his relationship, opens up about his past. And we are watching him even though we didn't really realize it on the fir- on first watch, grappling with his history and how he emotionally feels about it and how it has psychologically impacted him. But we are like sort of midstream in his journey of dealing with his history. The other thing that's really beautiful that kind of ties all of this together, whether it's these toothaches, laying your spikes down, opening up and facing your history, all of it is sort of the beginning of these characters. They all have these private, personal losses when it comes to biological family, from Gamry to Chief Hong to Heijin. And what we are watching is either people articulating out loud what someone means to them, their found family. So for example, Chief Hong to Gamri, sort of beginning this conversation of they are each other's found son slash grandson slash mother slash grandmother. But also with with Hei Zhen and sort of the the hole she feels in her life for a maternal figure and sort of the beautiful meal and sort of talk on the front step with Gamri, it's all sort of the beginning of this building a new found family, which, you know, at the end of the series is the beautiful one that we see celebrating them getting married. And this is the first time in this episode that we see Heijin open up to anybody. Yeah. And for it to be that grandmother figure, you know, the thing that she's missing to me for that to be the person she goes directly to is extremely symbolic. Yeah. It's just so rich on rewatch and I can't wait to dig into all the layers in episode three. It begins with this beautiful sort of romanticist montage that, that is narrated as the sounds of Ganjin. And what I love about this montage is the other episodes have opened with sort of beautiful visuals of the landscape. And this one does too, the ocean and boats on the ocean and the, and the waves. But, but, then it, but then it connects place and people. And the sounds of Ganjin are the characters of the village going about their everyday lives. So whether it's Oyun playing guitar or Nam Suk operating the register at a restaurant or Yoon Chol with the police siren, everybody going about their day and sort of the show finding this rhythm, almost music to people going about their everyday lives, which I think is such a beautiful example of how overall this show finds such beauty and meaning in everyday stories. Yeah, that there's a essentially a soundtrack that the world itself creates. Yeah, which is 
you know, I mean, uh, not that this show doesn't have a beautiful, you know, evocative soundtrack, <laughs> but <laughs> but like so much, so much of TV is about like big dramatic moments and sort of a beautiful score that goes along with it, right? Like heightened, you know, art so often, at least what we see like on TV is about these like heightened realities or heightened moments. And this is just sort of settling the audience in to finding music, rhythm, beauty in everyday life, not just in place of the place of Ganjin, but the people of Ganjin, which Beep, you often say Ganjin is almost a character in and of itself. Oh, 100%. Yeah, the the people, it, it's an organism. I mean, the community itself is is as much made up of individuals as it is a whole. And I love the way that, that the show always starts by almost bringing us into that and anchoring us into the visuals. Like you said, the sounds, it's almost like we're brought into being a part of the village, even though obviously we're, we're spectators. I I think when audiences were watching this show and you would see people talking about, I just want to go back to Ganjin, <laughs> that it felt like an escape. Part of that, of course, is also so many of us are sort of, you know, have been at home during the pandemic and not able to go places, but this is also a show that really takes the time to root a story in a place. And it's montages like this that maybe, you know, are just 45 seconds on the screen. But it's almost like as the audience, you're kind of like, okay, I'm back here. Mm-hmm. And you settle in and then you start to take in the story. It's a very comforting, like, welcome home type of feeling. Yeah, yeah. All right, talk to me about... <laughs> the final sound of the final sound that we come to is this is the sound of Miss Yoon Haejin from Seoul getting a package. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just one package. <laughs> Talk to me about this montage beep. I think what what's interesting here is almost that this doesn't belong to the current landscape. I mean, I'm sure people get packages. Mm. Don't misunderstand, obviously, especially with the the stores and the, um, you know, like the grocery store and stuff or the convenience store, whatever you like to call it. But this being for an individual and obviously just being, you know, what looks like a bit of splurging seems so out of character for the soundtrack we just heard. Yes. And it makes the point of saying Miss Yoon Haejin from Seoul. An outsider. Yeah. Who's bringing things, you know, as Chief Hong says, dude, you're like, this stuff's like from all over the world. Like, what are you ordering? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and this montage operates on so many different levels. So the first one is this very funny, just continuing their kind of bickering back and forth of, I mean, it is like they're like insulting each other's faces. And first of all, as the audience member, it's just like, all right, even when you guys aren't dressed up <laughs> to go into this city, you're both very attractive people. <laughs> so the fact that they're like insulting each other's faces and like criticizing each other, she calls him a fashion terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> which is so funny because I think in real life, like all of those plaid shirts and that whole aesthetic is basically like moving a lot of merchandise in the real world. But the way Chief Hong dresses is very much a part of his character and constructing that character. And see, oh. I love his response to that, though, with like, do you not understand functionality? Like <laughs> his little zippers. And I'm like, dude, I got you. Like, I'm so on his side. In that yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like as excited about his little zippered compartments as I am, like pockets in a dress. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also just like, you can't tell me that under the surface that like, no matter how annoyed he is at how many packages he has to bring, ha- that he has to bring to her door, that he isn't a little excited when he does. And how annoyed, you know, the way she, she throughout this episode is like, acting annoyed, but then is kind of disappointed when he walks away and doesn't continue the back and forth. Well, and he makes the comment, she asks, you know, kind of like, where's the regular guy? And that's another put off, you know, of like, I'm insulting you because I don't want you to be here. But he's like, oh, it's me right now. And this wasn't said, but I'm, I want to read into it to think that he like told the guy to take the night off. As we know, he's not above that. (laughs) Well, so there's there's that really fun, you know, as we talked about it, and it's funny because, you know, we we talked about sort of the magnets theory, which we then, we couldn't remember in our last podcast what movie it comes from, but it actually comes from 1990s cinematic masterpiece, The Cutting Edge. Cannot Um, believe I did not remember that. It was literally (laughs) one of my favorite movies. But that's, you know, that is a movie about, you know, (laughs) two ice skating partners who hate each other at the beginning because they're opposites. And so Mm -hmm. the female character, Moira Kelly, in that movie is basically describes them when she's a little bit drunk, which she has in common with Heijun, she talks about her feelings, which she's had a little bit too much, in this case, tequila, that <laughs> that there is this opposites attract and the magnets are bouncing off of each other. And that's what magnets do when you're playing with them. But then when something happens that finally flips them, boom, the magnets come together. And so we've got sort of the first stages of the cutting edge magnets <laughs> bouncing off of each other, but they are definitely, there's, there's, there's like this kinetic activity happening and I wasn't a science major, but there's this activity happening, right? The magnets are bouncing off of each other. And that's what's so fun to watch sort of in these early, like bickering scenes, whether it's insulting the way each other's faces look or slapping his hand or the car, they're just so annoyed at each other, but it's because there's so much sort of bubbling uncomfortably under the surface. Honestly, and and I truly mean this in the best way. I just don't know any other word to use. From the get-go, these two in their interactions are exhausting. (laughs) When you look at it from outside, you're just like, literally, how dumb are the two of you? Yeah. I sometimes see people describe it as like idiots, idiots falling in love. Like, Mm -hmm. because the audience knows, right? And that's part of the fun of the story. The audience knows what's going on. (laughs) Exactly zero self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. But then there is the layer that always was, you know, is we start to see in this episode when she goes back to the wedding. But now that we know all of Heijin's experiences when she didn't have a lot of income and was made fun of Mm -hmm. for how she dressed. When she says that these clothes are, quote, armor, I'll wear 
into a battlefield. At first, that just sounds like she's being such a girl boss. But when you put it back, just like you said, I mean, it's it's kind of devastating in its own right. Right. That 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 she has to this entire montage, this entire exercise of finding the perfect outfit to wear to this wedding. It is we could always understand on the surface, right? Any any reunion, whether it's like a school reunion or a wedding when you're going to see friends from an earlier stage of life, I think for most people can sometimes be like this time where you are you you look at your life from the outside and you wonder how other how it's going to stack up against other people's right because that's what these events whether it's like the wedding of a classmate or like a class reunion that's what that's what it's like for better mm-hmm. and worse so but she has just professionally particularly at a, seeing friends from a professional school that's that's what everyone's comparing notes on so she has just taken this rather unorthodox step of, in her words, going to the boondocks and opening this clinic. And now she has to go back to the city and face all of those friends. And they are, you know, as expected, extremely condescending about it. So part of the clothes, even even without knowing her backstory, are about putting on that armor to basically be like, no, my choices are valid. But then when you know that that this these societal expectations and the way she feels about herself and her own self-worth, it goes so deep in terms of what the clothes that she puts on her body and how she looks. And this wearing clothes as armor began with those pair of high heels that cut her, you know, that cut her Mm -hmm. feet back in college. Um, And she's also questioning her own worth. Her clinic is doing well. However, these are her dental friends. So you know that every one of them is already aware of the professional meltdown that occurred. Right. And so now it's like she's she actually is already questioning what she's gotten herself into. Partially because she's already judging it. So she knows they're going to. So she's prepared not only from their perspective, but also what she's concerned about herself as far as, oh my gosh, did I make a bad decision? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is just a way station for her in her mind. Well, right. Which she keeps saying out loud to them, to Chief Hong, part of Heijin's journey is re- is sort of casting off the societal expectations that are really manifested in this episode when she's sitting at the wedding around the table with her friends that she's ultimately going to arrive at a place that she will make clear is not just about it's not just about Chief Hong it's about how does she find value and her self-worth and satisfaction in her profession in a village helping people as part of a community rather than accepting a prestigious professorship in Seoul. Yeah, I would say this story for her is as much about finding home as it is about finding him. Yes. Yeah. And home in, 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 you know, what makes this such a great feminist story is it, it's as much about her, you know, found family and her personal relationships as it is, finding her professional home, you know, because each mm-hmm. episode until we get to the end, many of these early episodes are, are these series of vignettes where Heijin is professionally 
helping and supporting members of her community as a dentist. Right. Um, yeah. So, all right. So that that leads to, well, I think it's kind of a road trip from hell if it's Haitians. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I was Haitians. so frustrated on her behalf. <laughs> but everyone else is having a great time. They're yeah. Good, I mean. They're listening to music. Chief Hong is so diabolical in how he, like, he does all of this on purpose because he knows that if he shows up with the three adorable grannies and asks her right in front of them, there is no way that she can say no. Yeah. Yeah. This is, like, emotional (laughs) extortion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I love, I mean, I think that little, that little where she puts up her hand, like, no, any high five. Oh, stop. <laughs> that is hilarious. He's acting so naive and just so, oh, what? <laughs> He's like, all right, we are going. Let's go, everybody. <laughs> well, she's so, I mean, it's such a great metaphor for the way that she's like, don't cross the line. It puts her hand up and he's just like, okay, high five. Let's go. Like, <laughs> So, you know, there are a lot of, again, this show is like so detailed. All of the times that she slaps his hand away from the car, he's not allowed to drive it. He's not even allowed to close the trunk or touch the air conditioning later <laughs> on when they go on a date to Seoul. She's like, oh, but see, now you're my boyfriend. So now you can drive my car, right? Even how she, how she engages with other people about the things that she owns <laughs> lets us know so much about like Cajun's emotional state. There's like, so on the, on the one sort of first watch level, there's a lot of really great details here that kind of fit with sort of these overall romanticist themes that we've been talking about sort of since the beginning of this podcast, which is Cajun is in a rush. She's trying to get to the city on time. And Chief Hong is like, slow down, enjoy the food, look at the views, listen to music. And it's all about slowing down and enjoying things instead of rushing to get to the next place or the next event. And Right. Not- Life is not just point A and point B. Right. Exactly. Especially on this road trip because there were 47 stops. <laughs> Right. But then there are all of these layers on rewatch, which were only hinted at and were actually quite, quite the subject of speculation as to what he was doing in Seoul. But the first layer is Yoon Chol later in the episode says that Chief Hong has been going to Seoul a lot lately. And now we know, even though the building on first watch had several options, so we didn't quite know which one, which office he was going to, we now know, if we put all these pieces together, that he's been going to Seoul on a regular basis to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows why he's going. It's just something that he is doing privately. And it's so poignant that he has this cheerful demeanor and is thinking about thinking about getting the grandmothers to the city as well, right? He's thinking about others. And yet, he is back in the passenger seat of a car on his way to the city where his life fell apart and having to go into a therapy session with a psychiatrist to face all of that. So when I first saw the building, 
this is this is what I went through, you know, because even in English, they give us an idea of a few things that are shown there. At first, you think, oh, my gosh, maybe he's sick. And he's he's holding that back, which is like, uh, which would have actually gone with this episode mm-hmm. if we didn't know more about it later. Like, mm-hmm. you know, keeping mm-hmm. yourself healthy sort of thing. The other thing I thought on a, on a funnier end of the spectrum, if this show was a little more just like tongue in cheek, was that there was a dentist. There. <laughs> yep, yep. And I wondered if he just had like pre-existing appointments and specifically like thematically would not have gone to her as a patient because he wouldn't want her that close to him. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that at a dental clinic. Yeah. So in my in my little head canon initially, I was like, oh, he might be sick. And I was like, oh, let's dismiss that. I'm like, he's going to the dentist. <laughs> so that was a, a fun way to look at it. What I do love about this is not only, and they haven't shown it yet, but not only is this man in therapy, obviously has, you know, gotten medications as well which is not for everyone, but if he needed it, fantastic. I love that he's, you know, taking that assistance that's being offered to him, but he's doing it right now in a bubble. Mm. So he has this therapist and I'm assuming that he's been going for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. To the point that his, that, you know, given how, given what we now know, about Chief Hong, not only in his preferences of the village life versus the big city, but also everything that soul emotionally brings up for him. That when Yoon Chol says he's been going to Seoul a lot, you know, it's it seemed like this throwaway line, but on rewatch, it is a clue to the audience that he has been going to see the psychiatrist for quite some time. And later on, there's an epilogue where the psychiatrist, you know, it's clear that he's been going to him for a while because the psychiatrist is like, you know, you're doing a lot better. I think we can scale back the medication. Are you ready to face this in your therapy? So it's clear that we're kind of coming midstream into Chief Hong's mental health journey with therapy. And see, that's what I really like about it, especially when they go back and show that he's been doing this. One, I bet that there's not a psychiatrist, therapist, whatever profession we want to call them, in Gonjin. It's such a small place, they didn't even have a dentist. I highly doubt they have yeah. mental health. Yeah, or, or yeah, it's same with an obstetrician, right? So, right. yeah. And also for him to go specifically back to the place where this started is monumental. But as I mentioned before, everything he's been doing to this point is in a bubble. It's just him and this person that while I'm sure they've developed some sort of bond, doesn't really have any impact on his day-to-day life. So he's doing what a lot of us are able to do. He's opening up to a stranger, but there comes a point in therapy where there's only so much you can do in the office. You then have to learn to implement those things, not only for yourself, but among the people that you're with. And that's the place where we're seeing him which is not a place that we see in a lot of shows. I mean, we don't see therapy in a lot of shows anyway, mm-hmm. but especially we see them, you know, a lot of times saying like, okay, I know, I know I need to get help. And it starts at the beginning. Yeah. So absolute. it's really cool to see him essentially in this transition point of, okay, you've gotten as far as you can go on your own. Now, are you ready to integrate what you've learned into your life and allow this community that you've built around you 
to carry some of your burdens as well. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, I love that part of it because you're right to the extent of when we see characters on television in a mental health crisis, we often see them at a a far more dramatic psychological breaking point. And yes. and then it's about char- the, the characters who are in relationships in their lives. Like there's a different version of this show, for example, where he's having like a breakdown and it has to be the female character like Asian. That's like, no, you need help. Right. right and then right. he goes to see someone like that is the far more to the extent that we see it on TV. That's a far more common story that we Absolutely. see. And Chief Hong is unique. And I think actually groundbreaking when it comes in particular to being a male character. He did that on his own. Mm -hmm. And there's so much stigma, no no matter where you're from, I think particularly for men and and our stories normalizing that, right? Mm -hmm. So here's a man, we get a glimpse when he wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat of what he has been dealing with. But he hasn't opened it up to anybody about it. But he's somebody who on his own decided, I need help and has regularly been going to get it. And now that we know the depths of his mental health journey, that he is coming back from a point where he was, in fact, suicidal, perhaps that's why he realized, I can't do this by myself, right? But when it comes to his community, he's not opening up to anybody else. Beep, you're right that like, we're skipping over that part of a mental health journey that we so often see on TV. And, and you know, which, for example, what the next show we're going to talk about is, is the main focus of the story in Ted Lasso, right? Of Coach mm-hmm. Lasso opening up and getting comfortable with talking to a stranger about those kinds of innermost hurts. But this is a different kind of mental health story. This is about once he's done that work on his own, then what happens? Yeah. Well, what we normally see on television and movies in media is we see the breakdown, and what Shin Ha-un has chosen to focus on here, and I think it was amazing that she had the foresight to keep it away from the audience, just the same way that it was kept away from the characters, that she's not taking like the third-person omniscient view here. She's mm. It's a little bit at a time. Because I think we would have seen him differently. And, and not necessarily in a bad way, but the way he's framed would have changed. So what we normally see is the breakdown and what we get to see that's a little bit more unique in this case is we're going to get to see the breakthrough. Yes. And the way we get to know people in real life is we are watching him function in the community, in his everyday life, not knowing everything he's dealing with. So Right. It's organic. Yeah. He's in the car eating food, singing with the ladies, right? He's having a great, the only one who's not having a good time in that car is Haitian. The the grandmas are like my three kids in the back of the car <laughs> with the 
food everywhere. And I was like, oh, I've been there, Haitian. Right? And nobody has to go to the bathroom at the same time. No, and you're never, all just like, you stop never. and you're like, are you sure you don't have to go? And they don't have to go. But then 15 minutes later, it's like, I can't hold it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what is so poignant and meaningful and has such sort of real world thought provoking application is because she because Shen Ha-un constructs the story where we watch Chief Hong in his everyday life, helping other people, quote unquote, being noisy, crossing the line, enjoying himself in all the ways that he does and have have entered the story midstream in his mental health journey. It just makes us, it's even more thought provoking to then apply that to real life and think about all of the things that we don't know that people are personally struggling with. And it's why this episode is such a gut punch to rewatch. Yep. For everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And so just segueing to the first gut punch. On first watch, the near accident on the highway where Heijin is basically just then like Mad Max. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) I'm going after this guy and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. On first watch is kind of this hilarious, like, oh my God, she is crazy running this guy down. And then when the guy insults her, it is the grandmother who's always the most concerned about propriety that then goes off (laughs) with all kinds of Oh my gosh, yeah. she's hilarious. And she's the one who's always the most worried about like, oh, are you holding hands in public, right? She's the most <laughs> concerned about propriety, but she's going to let some off-color words rip when a guy is misogynistic to a, to a woman. And hey, it's fantastic. road rage is a real thing too. Right, right. So, so there's this whole comedic layer to that scene. <sighs> then you rewatch it. And when you rewatch that entire series of events, knowing, first of all, uh, uh, we, know, we know a whole lot less about Heijin, but Heijin has been in a car accident and has chronic neck pain from it, mm-hmm. right? So that gives us a little bit of a clue as to why she is so pissed off about somebody driving recklessly. But <sighs> the chief hong of it all. If anyone listening has not gone back and rewatched this scene, go back and watch it and focus on Kim Sun Ho's face. Because he is, Chief Hong is back in the passenger seat. There was almost an accident. Hei Jin is screaming things at this reckless driver, saying things like, don't drive so recklessly or you're bound to cause an accident. Don't cause harm to others. Chief Hong's face is sober and thoughtful and he's kind of looking off in the other direction. And it's so subtle that we kind of never really would have caught it on first watch. But once we know everything that must be going through that man's head as the survivor of a tragic car accident who, where he watched his friend die in front of him, it's it is really, it is really hard emotionally to watch. I mean, all the stuff that not only has he already internalized in his own guilt, but then this makes it look like other people would judge him too. Because that's the lens that he's looking through. It's skewed. This must feel like being read the riot act. 
Well, and don't cause harm to others, right? Right. It's it's now the overriding kind of like guilt mantra that he lives with, as we talked about in the last pod, you know, his perpetual state of atonement, right? He views all of those series of that cataclysmic series of events and soul, all of the things he did or didn't do, it's about causing harm. And about mm-hmm. trying to make up for harm, right? So, so you have the fact that I mean, who knows in terms of PTSD, everything that that harrowing car chase and her screaming those things, and he's back in the passenger seat of a car, brought up for him. But then on top of that, right? There's that whole layer of of don't cause harm to others. Just a, a, anybody listening, if you haven't gone back, you have to go back and rewatch that scene and just watch Kim Sun Ho's face because you know it just it's so. It's so curious to me about how much information, right, the actors had at what point, knowing sort of what the end of the story was, or if it's just the director giving them the direction. But there's so many layers to that scene that seemed purely comedic on first watch. Mm -hmm. Okay, but also let's address, and maybe let's just do it in a way for, for a moment, as if it were a simple romantic gesture. Talk to me about mom arming <laughs> ah the mom arm oh it kills me it kills me on on it killed me on first watch because it was a hint at not only maybe what she's feeling but also just the kind of person Haitian is that it's her instinct yes. to protect that is an automatic reaction you cannot plan that you cannot plan to not do it it's just your mom arming, right? Yeah. Your arm just goes out as a reaction, right? And then his reaction to it is so like, oh my, like he's internally screaming like, oh my God, she just mom armed me. Like, what does that mean? And the thing that is so lovely about it, the the way that later on when he's asleep and she lowers the chair, I mean, mm. lowers his seat is... Chief Hong is someone who has been alone for so long that later on, as Heijin puts it, it's like you almost don't know how sad it is to be alone when you're sick. And now he has someone putting their arm out to protect him and, and even to like anybody, right? But, but then if you think about the fact that this man has been through a tragic car accident, if you want to just add that feels grenade and throw that into it on top of it it is like it was you know on first watch it was such a subtle like okay we're we're slowly building right Mm -hmm. we're slowly building this climb to them but the fact that she does it and his reaction to it is just like i was freaking out the first time but now it just makes me emotional because the way that they so often express their feelings for one another before they even have are even able to put it into words is through these acts of care Right. And you have this moment in, in most cases he works to keep people out. He, he doesn't allow anyone to support him or protect him. And when you have this split second moment where nobody can actually make a conscious choice, she has protected him. He has been protected. And I think there's a certain kind of, maybe I liked that. going on in there, you know, like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't so bad. Right. Yeah. 
And I, you know, and I also love the the gender role reversal there, right? Sure. It's a woman protecting a man or sort of in the opposite direction. When the grandmothers are peppering Haitian about her past history, and she says, I lost my mother, again, you watch Chief Hong's face. And he doesn't, anytime she talks about her past history, and he will say at the end, you know, there's a lot of things that I didn't know about you. <laughs> he, he notes it all. He notes, I lost my mother. I was young, so I almost don't remember it, right? And, and then what she, does, what she doesn't know is that she has a man sitting next to her in the car who has lost both his parents and his grandfather. And so that's why he, he you know, what you were talking about the last time, Beep, the way that loss can engender empathy. He doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't miss it in the car, and he doesn't miss it when they're out on the sidewalk later on in Seoul. But he also doesn't address it, which is interesting. He doesn't let her know, you know, hey, I clocked you doing that. Like, he's just taking it all in and trying to figure out what yeah. he's going to do with that information. Absolutely. In fact, sometimes in ways where he will give her emotional cover, right? So he will notice, and they will show us later on, that when she is looking at the wedding party leaving, She's focusing on a mother and a daughter, but he will mm-hmm. give her cover and say, oh, what is it? Like you wish you were getting married to, right? So right. he he will not, he he registers it. He internalizes it. He kind of is putting all this information away in his head and maybe it changes what he thinks about her, but he doesn't push because it's the last thing probably he would want anybody to do to him. <laughs> right? right. And I'm sure that one, well, they're not in a place for this yet per se, but he doesn't necessarily want to bring it up and question her about it because he's not in a place where he could talk about himself. So that brings us to Heijin sitting at a table with all of her friends from dental school. As somebody who practiced law in DC (laughs) and is dreading things like going to law school reunions where all of the conversations are about bragging about how hard you worked, whether you made partner, how much money you're making, oh, how busy you are. This, This scene and the chatter at the table is so excruciatingly real it makes my skin crawl. Absolutely. And initially, I just think, oh, these people are the worst. And then I think to myself, this is what every single conversation is like with either new people or people you haven't seen in a long time that you're not actually that close to. Yeah. And then it just makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's terrible in such a real way. Like the bragging about working on the weekends as if that's something to brag about. Right? That sounds horrific to me. Right? As opposed to the opposite end of the lifestyle that Chief Hong will then push back at towards two of these women at the golf club to be like, nah, I just decided not to live my life that way. You know, I got a surfboard and the person I love and I work when I want. It's just the most extreme version of this like materialistic, capitalistic, big city chasing income, the high-powered job, status, it's all of it just rolled into one conversation. And Heijin is absolutely, like, she's defending herself, but she's, but if you notice, 
it's not where she will, She. It, this is like a signpost in her character journey. It's not like she's pushing back being like, yeah, I actually don't want to work all weekend, right? What she's saying is, well, actually, I'm going to earn a lot more money than you guys because my loans and everything else I'm paying for, my overhead is far less and my I don't have to compete with anyone and my waiting room is filled with clients. So, <laughs> you know, so she's not, it's not like she is defending Ganjin on its merits. She is defending her life choice as of right now, still measuring herself against the same metrics of success. Which oh, is- she's 100% still speaking their language. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's where she is in so many ways. You know, like we mentioned, she just keeps saying in, in one way or another, like, this is temporary. And yet she's defending to them look how good of a temporary situation I made. Yeah. What I love too is the show plays with all of these like sort of different versions of kind of like a classic Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. And they tease her for being late. And they're basically like, you know, in school, you were always called Cinderella because you were like so punctual or like leaving early right before midnight. And there's obviously... There's obviously like that part of the Cinderella story, but we now know that Heijin is also like Cinderella, you know, the poor one who didn't have any clothes <laughs> at university, right? And then you've got the way this episode ends that Chief Hong will save her shoe and restore it and return it to her. And that shoe was something that she paid for herself, which is a twist on on the original Cinderella story, right? Mm-hmm. That was her symbol of better days to come. And so there's all of this like Cinderella deconstructing or parallels to sort of that like original fairy tale that are like a thread throughout this episode, but obviously throughout the series, because the big feminist twist is Cinderella is going to buy the prince a pair of shoes at the end of the show to propose. <laughs> <laughs> They're such equals. I know this is just kind of a random place to insert this, but I just love that the story always paints them as equals and paints them all the way up to, you know, the lead up to them getting together, breaking up, staying, whatever it is. They're always individuals first. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I just love. You don't see that very often in TV either. No. Uh, oftentimes one or the other specifically will exist for the sake of the romance. Right. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, I I mean, typically for decades, that's been the woman, right, as the love interest. But sometimes that can go the other way and you kind of overcorrect. This is, they are both fully realized characters that each have their own character journey. And this wedding scene, as we said, is a big kind of moment for the audience to register in what Heijin currently values and how she measures success in her life. But, you know, but but they're such equals. And and even in how, as we'll get into it, even as to how they come to a resolution with Gamri, they both have an equal part to play in it. Mm -hmm. Beep. Talk to me about Heijin in episode three, Alone, Watching a woman say goodbye to her mother at a wedding and the obvious sadness and loneliness she feels watching it. 
Chief Hong watching her from a distance and noting it and knowing what it's about based on what she said in the car and how this series ends with them taking their wedding photos in the midst of their found family. I cannot imagine no matter how tumultuous in many ways a a mother daughter relationship could be. I, I can't imagine having not had my mother from childhood and the idea, especially in her, in Heijin's vision of success, which obviously here she's been talking a lot about professionally. There's also an expectation in many cultures. I'd say it's probably pretty universal of marriage and of starting a family. And for her to look upon someone who's kind of being blessed with those things and to know or to assume that she will never have that is, is just so gut wrenching. Yeah. I mean, I think no matter what to have your mother there on your wedding day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to have your mother there on any big life event, graduation, wedding day, right? Like there's, there's a letter that Shin Ha-un wrote in the script book, which are letters that Heijin and Chief Hong write to one another that are sort of like, I guess we can consider them as part of canon because they were written by the writer of the show, but sure. they're in the script book. But but she, the letter she writes to Chief Hong is the night after they have confessed to one another and are together. And she talks about like her graduation day and and thinking that it wasn't, you know, I thought it'd be a big deal about whether my mother or not would be there, but all of these other life events that will always, in some way, be measured or defined by this absence. And what her father later on says is, I just want her to have, you know, when she gets married, I want her to have a family. And, you know, he's saying it in sort of this very black and white literal way that because Chief Hong is an orphan, right? That she's not, quote unquote, marrying into a family, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no one obviously to call mother and father when if she were to be with him. But what is so beautiful is this scene of the two of them standing apart. She's looking at this mother and daughter. He's looking at her. And the way the series is going to end is the two of them surrounded by their found family of Gonjin celebrating their wedding. It's just the, the, it's just a beautiful parallel. And this is sort of one, this is like the, this is where we're at. (laughs) (laughs) And then the bookend is that's where we're going to end up in our journey. What's what I would say is sad about that, especially the way her father has spoken to it was that he is her family and for every opportunity that he's had, he hasn't really seized on that. And for him to kind of put it outside of himself and outside of her saying, you know, I hope she marries into, I hope she gets a family. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of sad. Right? It's kind of hard to know just because it wasn't the one that you anticipated for her. You, you kind of robbed her of that a little bit too. Yeah, because he is, you know, he's loving. He's clearly he loves her, his daughter, but he is emotionally distant. And you get the sense that it's actually the stepmother who pushes them, you know, right? Is the outsider who's like, okay, let's bring 
Let's, I'm going to send them side dishes. <laughs> Why don't you come yes. visit? Which calls back actually to what you were just saying about so many parallels and flips of the Cinderella story. The stepmom is amazing. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the stepmom is fantastic. You're right. Because that's part of that story too, right? The, the mother passes away. So she's stuck with the stepmother. Yeah, and absolutely. That's such a good point. They subvert Cinderella. They play with Cinderella in so many great ways. Absolutely. So, I mean, what uh, we should move to the, the scene of when they're riding over the bridge. But really quickly, one of the things that I love that, that this show points out <laughs> is it doesn't matter if it's the village or the big city people are always going to gossip. Oh, yes. <laughs> so they're surreptitiously taking photos and are going to send it to the class chat later. <laughs> yeah. The Who's- only difference between like country and city used to be that in a small area, it would spread much faster. But now we have technologies. So. <laughs> yeah. So there's a- everyone's going to know about it. There is, there's group, there's Ganjin group chat which Misan is a part of, and there's classmate <laughs> group chat and soul. And the purpose of both of them is to just talk about everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can move to, this is another scene that is seemed like it was one thing on first watch. And it is that that layer's absolutely always there. And then on rewatch is a total gut punch. So Chief Hong loses his phone, as he is wont to do throughout this series. But this time, <laughs> unlike later on when Heijin wants to get a hold of him, she's now stuck with him on this ride home. And the first time I watched this, this ride home where they are comparing wine on the Han River versus uh, rice wine on a boat in Ganjin or pasta or snow crab ramen, all of those sort of if we want to bring it back to Thoreau, Chief Hong's Ganjin is my Rome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Concord is my Rome. He's waxing romantically about the country life. And Heijin is pointedly pointing out everything that she is sad that she's leaving behind going back, quote unquote, to the boondocks. So it seemed like this really kind of like checking in on these are our two opposites and these are their two current life views clashing. Now, it serves, there's a lot of other levels to it. Again, the show is so detailed that it will remember what Heijin was talking about in terms of what she will miss when she was leaving the city. And in episode 10, when she is back in Seoul and drinking wine by the Han River, all of a sudden the river will seem narrower than she Mm. remembered. And instead of complaining about having to drive back to the boondocks, she will be clamoring to leave Seoul and drive home to Ganjin. So there's this sort of like, this is a scene that we can remember and sort of think back to on Heijin's character journey. Yeah. And I love that. I love, because I feel like what she comes to the realization of in episode 10 is it's not about the status Because a lot of that is what this is that she's speaking about. Oh, I wish I was, you know, over in this place drinking wine on the river or whatever. It's, It's part of what she's engrossed in right now. It's just her worldview in general. And I feel like she comes to realize that a place is not just a place. One can be elevated 
by the people who are there. Yes. And also in a way that to tie it to some of the, their back and forth in this episode, she's in a rush, right? And he's like, enjoy the food, enjoy the view. The way the show depicts Heijin's change in her point of view, how she has been changed by her experiences in Ganjin, is it has literally changed her perspective when looking at the natural landscape or in what food she or drink she enjoys, right? She's at this fancy restaurant in episode 10 eating lobster, and she's remembering eating snow crab with Chief Hong, right? Mm-hmm. So the way they express how her point of view has changed, right? And there's even a line in this episode that Chief Hong says to her, people don't change easily, do they? Well, Heijin goes through quite a journey, and and they, the language of this show kind of begins with the seemingly comic road trip where she didn't have time to do any of those things, right? Or she's leaving the city and she's just thinking about like the pasta you can eat up in the skyscraper. And all of a sudden it's going to be the her yearning for home and for him is going to be expressed in the food she misses or the way the natural landscape looks to her. It absolutely reminds me of some Ani DeFranco lyrics from like way back where she says, what matters more is the person that I bring, not just going to the same restaurant and eating the same thing. Mm-mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, you know, if we are going to use it in the language of Gamri, when she's looking back on her life, right? It's those meals that she shared and the people they were with and the beautiful places that she saw. And that's, you know, really this show's sort of, the thread of sort of like its theory of what its theory about what life is really about. Mm-hmm. It's not about what the people at the table at the wedding were talking about. No. And, and also what love is really about and not just romantic, literally all kinds of relationships. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's that whole side of how that scene is just such a wonderful setup of kind of our, a marker for where Heijin is in her character journey. Then there's the chief Hong of it all. And the director and the editing are so intentional when you compare this scene and put it side by side with the flashbacks we get in episode 15 to another time Chief Hong was on a bridge over the Han River. And it's very subtle, right? The the song that's playing is kind of a little bit ethereal sounding. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more contemplative. The shot is behind the car on the bridge. On the right-hand side, you have the guardrail. Very noticeably, in a way that almost, I don't know, may have seen kind of like a throwaway shot to just establishing that they're on a bridge, but is now when you take into account episode 15 quite intentional. Because, because there will be there was a time in the past where Chief Hong was sitting in a hospital gown right behind that guardrail and Hei Jin was driving past him. That is, it just gives me like chills, goosebumps, you name it. Then you sort of watch his face. And then as they're talking about the skyscrapers, Chief Hong says that the skyscrapers are suffocating. Mm. I can't wait to go back to Ganjin. I can't think of a better word, truly, that details 
the panic that he must be experiencing right now. He's keeping a pretty straight face, but my guess is there's an extremely elevated heart rate. He's having to be very deliberate about his breath. He's having a physical reaction that he cannot control, even though obviously he's, he's trying to make it look like he's not having it, but it's just one more indication of those things that are not on the surface, the secret pain in which he's experiencing right in front of somebody. Right. And, and it, it also gives so much depth to what we thought was just, this is who Chief Hong is. He loves the country life. But he's on the bridge over the river where he almost ended his own life. Mm-hmm. And what he has always said is that Ganjin saved him. And so when Heijin is extolling, you know, the glamorous city, he constantly as his, like his touch point is Ganjin. I would rather be on the boat. You know, I would rather be there doing that than anywhere, but then, I mean, meeting than here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Now we know it's not just, hey, I'd rather be in Gongjin than anywhere else. It's like, no, get me as far away as possible, not only distance wise, but lifestyle wise. Get me away from here. Right. Get me to the place that saved my life. Right. And I was thinking about that ride itself. And it's brutal. It's brutal when you understand what he's gone through. I don't deign to assign people with disorders, but I'd say it's pretty clear that given the level of trauma that he has had, that he has PTSD or some version of it. Let's just say, you know, whatever he's, he's dealing with trauma Mm -hmm. and that can manifest itself in ways that you do not expect and ways that you don't want to accept It's, I just, I mean, it's back to the suffocating thing. I can't, well, unfortunately, I can imagine what he's going through physically. Watching it this morning, now that I knew about it, I got the same thing. Mm -hmm. It made me so apprehensive. My chest just tightened because there, there are different kinds of trauma, right? Just like we were talking about, there's different kinds of pain. There are acute incidents where something major happens and then there are the chronic incidents where something is happening and building up over time and just keeps poking at you. And he's had both. He already had so much trauma as a child, losing his parents, losing his grandfather. Later on, you know, the things that he feels like he's done, the guilt that we're ongoing, losing his brother, essentially being blamed by his brother's wife. I mean, there are so many things in his case, especially that are huge and were huge among themselves. And I know what that is like. It is a real true human thing to have that much trauma and tie it to a place. Mm. So where that happened, I literally have a city that I cannot go to in my life because of something that was so traumatic I guess in a way maybe it's good that some of it got left there Mm -hmm. but I cannot go to that place now I assume if I absolutely had to for some reason it it may be possible but I'm never going to choose to go there so I already have a little bit 
I think what I would call respect for him and the fact that he's powering through that seemingly quite often based on, you know, Unchol's response earlier that he's been going there a lot. So he is facing not only his internal fears, but his external fears, things that happen to him physically. He's putting himself through that, let's assume weekly, because he cares enough about taking care of himself in a way that I don't even think he realizes. Yeah. I was thinking about this morning. When I look at his guilt, when you know that he's going by there and it's super traumatic because, you know, he was ready to commit suicide, but we now know why he was ready to commit suicide. It was because of what he has taken on as the pain that he caused something that is his fault, the security guard, his brother, he has internalized all these things as, you know, if it were not for me, they would not have happened. And I think what's really interesting after an incident like that is the pain is always there. It's just like you were saying earlier that ache is such a beautiful word for that. It is always there after you have an experience like that. It may not, it may be a a small hum instead of a loud scream, but it's there. When I thought about this this morning, having gone through something like this, when that initial pain, when it hasn't died down yet, it is constant. You are thinking about it constantly. It's almost like in certain situations, you don't even know how you're accomplishing anything else because that is at the forefront of your mind. And there's this weird increase in guilt that happens because the only time you can identify that you've stopped thinking about it as much is when you do think about it and you realize that you weren't thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's the same as if you've been like missing someone who died and then you realize you went a certain amount of time and didn't. Yeah. Didn't think about it at all. Yeah. And that's a relief in the in the healing process, but it's terrifying from a guilt perspective if you have this regret. Because what that means is your mind is allowing you or almost forcing you to start moving on whether you want to or not. Yeah. And and just to pick up on the PTSD you know, and and we're using, of course, that term loosely. So, so Chief Hong coping still with the after effects of the trauma that he went through. He has a nightmare after this trip where he wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and and has to take the prescription. And that shot of him alone in the kitchen in the middle of the night is so painful and solitary. But then what I think is interesting is the car ride home after they've sort of gotten over the bridge, the first instance, we've seen a lot of Chief Hong being sleepless. The first instance where he falls asleep for hours <laughs> because it's dark later and he has slept through several traffic jams, as Hei Jin has noticed. <laughs> but the first time we have seen him been able to sleep at ease is next to Haitian and next to being sort of her second act of just kind of, you know, I don't just instinctually, she's not really thinking about it. He, she doesn't even think he's watching when she lowers the seat 
and kind of like smiles at him, you know, being asleep in the passenger seat of the car. And he does see it out of the corner of his eye. You know, the fact that he thinks back and remembers that as significant when he's making the candle, the fact that he's able to fall asleep and rest for hours, despite you know, the car coming to a standstill, probably in traffic multiple times, is sort of the first hint that he finds a solace and comfort by her side that he has been struggling with alone. And may I also point out, it's in a car. That is right. We see him not being able to sleep in his own bed. Now to go to a car which is symbolic of these things that have happened. I remember I was in a car accident when I was 16 and I truly thought when that happened, I would never drive again. I was terrified. It was awful. Yeah. And you do, you move on, you know, from, from anything that wasn't so much emotional as it just was truly terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. You, but you, he is sleeping in a car through the city. Yeah. He, you know, that he's so traumatized by. And if that's not an indication that whether he intends to or not, he feels safe in some way, then I don't know what is. Yeah, that's such a good point. Oh, the details. It's crazy. Ah, all right. Before we make ourselves cry <laughs> with Camry and Chief Hong, I just want to point out a few things that this episode, just in passing, because we'll end up talking about it in future episodes, but, but, you know, Shin Ha-un is juggling a lot of balls in this episode. So there's all these layers that we talked about, but she's also setting a lot up in terms of other characters. So there are a lot of love stories, both family, friendship, and romantic in Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. One of them is the delightfully earnest Yoon Chol and Mison. Oh. And their first scene of truly meeting one another is so them in how she's like, oh, wow, you look pretty hot in a uniform, but also I'm going to say in front of somebody else how terrified you were in the dentist's office. <laughs> and I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that all out loud and just put all of that out there. And he is like so adorably embarrassed and at a loss for words because of her. And you're just like, yep, that's them. <laughs> that's yeah, like- well, he was their first patient, but he came in plain clothes. So now she, <laughs> she's all like, hello, uniform. officer. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's other really subtle sort of the, the story of Ha Zhang and young Gook's divorce and their son's quote unquote toothache, the way he is so stoic and acting so grown up. And and, and as he observes his parents bickering in front of him at his birthday celebration and the way he's like, you know, we really don't have to do this in the future. You know, now when you think of the way he finally lets out his emotions and crying Mm. at the end when they get back together, right? That's a scene where, you know, you kind of clocked as he was looking at them, right? That he is mature and registering what's going on with his parents. But we had no idea sort of like how we could only imagine sort of how deep that hurt went. But also just the way that these two ex-spouses both talk to one another, mm-hmm. which is harshly. But also he misses her cucumber kimchi. Yeah. She packs it for him 
And it's an act of care, even when her words are harsh. And Chief Hong later on kind of clocks it and is kind of smirking like, oh, you too. You know, like, so she, she's doing sort of, even with the secondary characters, setting up so much in terms of not only this other love triangle, which like our primary love triangle is going to subvert many expectations in a great way, but also this other love story. So there's a lot of other setup going on kind of in these like scenes with secondary characters. Yeah. And when you're looking at the family dynamic, it's so devastating to see that. Yes. Even though when I was six, I was bothered. I'm clearly nine now, so it's fine. A nine-year-old shouldn't be the one taking the temperature of the room, trying to keep things under control, saying that we don't have to do this because he's trying to essentially protect the adults in the room. That is really sad. Yeah, but unfortunately, that is often the case with divorce, right? It is 100%. You often get a front row seat to how how flawed your parents are. And sometimes kids are the ones that have to act like the adults. So yeah, it's painful. It was painful on first watch, but it's even more painful now that we know how much he was holding in emotionally, you know, just like our chief Hong, (laughs) you know, if our, if our Yi Jun is our tiny chief Hong and Bo Ra is our tiny Haitian, yeah, you have those parallels. So and you know they're going to get together in their 30s. Yeah, in the hometown cha-cha-cha cinematic universe. Beep, talk to me about Chief Hong jumping on a scooter with Gamri. Okay. <laughs> Logistically, I was super concerned about this when I saw it this time. And I don't know why I didn't think about it before, but I was like, before I noticed the way it came up, I was like, oh my God, does that thing have like more wheels or something? Because she is not going to be able to balance the two of them. He's a very tall man. He is. <laughs> no, and it's very difficult to do that on a scooter, like even more so than a motorcycle. When she first pulled up, I was like, wow, she's like pretty flexible to even, you know, hold herself up. And now he's getting like, you don't understand how concerned I was. Well, <laughs> I saw there were two back wheels and then I was like, okay, I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, it's <laughs> so adorable. It's, it's just, ah, uh-huh. like her little helmet, you know, like you've got, she's 80 and you've got this 30, some 35 year old man jumping on the back of the scooter and putting yeah. his arms around her, right. To hold on. Like, it's just like, it's so adorable. It's like, I, I can't handle it. <laughs> and making such a show out of how he holds on to her because she's like, make sure it's tighter when like literally it's not going to fall because, you know, I did realize there are more wheels. But she plays with him and then he so dramatically like holds on even tighter. It's mm. just, it's so sweet. It's the best. All right. So we're going to put on our big girl pants. We're going to dig into all of the ways that this episode in particular really sets up Gamry's letter at the end of the series that these two are family. They are mother and son, grandmother and grandson. Mm-hmm. And one of the very subtle ways is that when chief Hong is walking out, the way he has been paid is with a piece of halibut and they're joking around. Oh, you're just trying to get me to cook for you. Right. But this is a man who walks out and when he gets a piece of fish, he thinks, I want to share it with Gamri. Mm-hmm. Whereas Gamri drove all the way to Seoul 
to bring her son, her specialty, the marinated crab. Not only did he have not did he not have time to even share a meal with her when she drove all the way there. He hasn't even eaten it since. Yep, he didn't eat it later. And mm. so even again just bringing back to community, sharing food, how we express love. It is really important in this series when and how people share food with one another, even to let us know sort of what's going on with Chief Hong and Haitian's romantic relationship, right? So it's really so poignant now knowing how these two feel about one another, to watch them share these meals and joke around and tease one another, right? Because that's like, that's family, sharing food, right? And ribbing each other. Yeah, yeah. And but then there's always the layer that that Chief Hong is an orphan. And he doesn't have any, any biological family. Right. All, right. Even even grandparents. Like he has no one. And there is kind of this thread in his emotional reaction, which he will allude to later throughout this episode of his emotion about why won't she accept this money from me? You know, is it because I'm not her actual son, right? That that is sort of, if you think about it, this episode and the scenes when he reads Gamry's letter and processes it are almost like these two indirect bookends of a conversation they're having with one another. Because in this episode, Dushik is letting Gamry know that he thinks of her as family. You know, the fact that he is so worried about her, the fact that he comes running when she needs porridge, he faces her again, even when she pours water in his face. He goes to extreme lengths to pay for, try and cajole Heijin to do it secretly, call her son, anything to carry her literally on his back while she is hitting him to the dental office, (laughs) right? All of it, all of it is because he loves her. And it's all kind of indirect, you know, like when he says, why won't you accept my money? It's all indirect. And and she's never going to really say it to his face either. It's going to come in a letter after she's gone. So it's kind of this, there's no doubt about the way the two of them feel about one another, but there's also this kind of bittersweet, the indirect way that they let each other know without truly ever saying it out loud to to each other's face, which is frankly more like life. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, there's some more trite television shows where we would have had that conversation face to face. But instead, it's sort of these subtle, indirect ways. Right. And so. Well, and then there's a version where you have the subtle, indirect ways and then it's never mentioned again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you have sort of this. I mean, there's a lot of comedy too. When she douses him with water, it is hilarious. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's just. Like, and then he's like hiding behind the wall and trying to finish his thought. And she's just like throwing more water at him over the (laughs) wall. Like there's, you know, nothing funnier than an 80 year old woman dumping water on a 35 year old, very tall, handsome man's face. And he's like running away scared from her. So there's a lot of comedy to it. But when he comes back and he says, you accept money from your son, but why not from me? Mm. <sighs> from his end, it's like this 
sadness or insecurity or misinterpretation, right? She's not going to accept the money from him because she needs to go on her own journey that she's worth it Mm -hmm. after sacrificing most of her life for others. But he interprets it because he's not her biological family. Maybe that's what it's about. Right. And he's going to voice that later when he mourns her in the finale. Like, God, I always thought that that's why, you know, like I wondered. But and then he's going to break open when she answers him. Right. Her face when he in kind of a beautiful way that, you know, we'll talk about how Chief Hong and Haitian internalize with the wisdom that they share with one another and kind of think about it and mull over it. There's this beautiful kind of circle of Heijin talking about losing her mother and that parents, you know, being a good parent is taking care of yourself, mm-hmm. you know, making sure you're around. When Chief Hong voices that to Gamri, it's indirectly saying, because I view you as my parent, mm-hmm. my and I need you around. And I need you around. And and the camera lingers on Gamri's face. And though though she hears those words after the after the audience has been let in on the pain of how her biological son doesn't have time to eat with her, but it's Chief Hong who's sitting and eating with her. How her mm-hmm. how her son is like, money's tight. I think you should just get the dentures, where it's Chief Hong who is the one who's like, take my money, please do it calling her son, right? And she kind of, it's this moment where you see her absorb, oh, that's how he feels about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is expressing to her in a way that she realizes this is like you would take from your son because you feel like, and he, in theoretic you feel like it is his duty or it is kind of a thought process that it is, you know, the duty to take care of, of your elderly family. But chief Hong is doing it out of pleasure. Essentially. I want to take care of you because you mean that much to me. Right. Out of love. And that is the scene where he tells her indirectly, you are my family Mm -hmm. and she's going to answer him. And I believe the editing even cuts back to her in this moment when you have the voiceover of Gamry's letter in the finale. She's going to answer him after she's gone and say, you are my son and you are my grandson. And there, you, Shin Ha-un even sort of extends this beautiful circle further because at Gamry's funeral, this son that we have only heard about or heard his voice on the phone because he's distant, right? When he finally comes back to Ganjin, it will be after his mother is gone. And he will be struggling with that guilt. You know, why couldn't I have made the time while she's while she was here? And Chi Fong is the one who's going to sit with him on that step and give him the benefit of his very hard-earned wisdom about guilt and sit with Gamri's son as he sort of processes his guilt over not making time for her. So you've got sort of this conversation across many episodes between a found mother and son, grandmother and grandson, but you also have all of these like concentric circles of wisdom 
Yes. Yeah. And the way that they connect to the main story, I feel like they always connect not only secondary characters, but in this case, kind of a tertiary character. I mean, her son's really not much of a character except to serve a purpose in contrast, but for them to bring him back later and show that side of it is kind of genius. Yeah. And so I I wanted to move to sort of the, what's subtle of this up, of course, is the talk at night by the water between Chief Hong and Heijin. He was understandably, from his perspective, a bit taken aback at how Heijin could have been so kind of harsh. She was extremely brash in speaking to Gamry, which seemed like not knowing anything, that it kind of came out of nowhere. And she was just being like a bit much. Yeah. So she was very terse and basically like, okay, if it's not a matter that you don't have the money, because we know Heijin from the very beginning of this story, the whole reason why she's in Ganjin is because she's worried about somebody, the elderly spending something, spending money on care they don't need, right? We know that. But as soon as Gamri is basically like, no, it's not that I own a lot of land and I own my house, it's that I'm not going to spend that money. It triggers that ache in Heijin about her own mother. Yeah. And she just shuts down. And it's like, okay, well, then this con- this is over. We're done. And Chi Fong is like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> like, Which, understandably so, in this, in, yeah. with the amount of knowledge that he has. I mean, she, she was coming across pr- pretty harsh, like you said. Yeah. So we have, you know, now this is the first time that they sit under this lighthouse. And this lighthouse is a place that, we see Chief Hong a lot alone when he needs to think, but it's also where the two of them have some very important moments in their relationship. Obviously, it's where they're going to first say their feelings out loud. It's also where Chief Hong is going to answer why Gamri means so much to him, right? It's the first kind of heart to heart because they're both burying a little bit of themselves. Certainly Hei Jin, she's not coming flat out and saying it, but he knows what she's talking about. And she's articulating a lot of things out loud that I don't know if she would with, with other people, right? It's, it's kind of the first time that she's indirectly opening up about why she was so terse in the office. And Chi Fong has enough information to know from the car ride that it's about her mother. But she asks him, why are you doing this? You know, like you're not, you're not, you're not her guardian. So like, what's your deal? Like he's like a dog with the bone about Mm -hmm. this, you know? And I think it's really interesting how this show plays with this, I, this relationship between selflessness and selfishness and almost care that almost carrying selflessness to the point that you don't take care of yourself when people are depending on you, Heijin actually calls that selfishness. Sure. Yeah. It's a negative feedback loop. Yeah. Which, which is so real. Like, I, you know, I can't tell you how many, for example, mothers, I have three kids and mothers that I talk to where we are up to date on all of our kids' pediatric appointments and all of that, but we've like forgotten or haven't had the time to make our own physical checkup. You know, sure. so yeah. so that is, and that's a very mundane everyday example. And so I think that's really, that's a really interesting, you know, that there should be a limit that taking care of yourself 
is not selfish. No, it is absolutely not. <laughs> and what I think is interesting here is Heijin, when she says, do you know what it means to be a good parent? It's staying healthy for a long time. It, she is letting Chief Hong in just a little bit more on what her quote unquote toothache, what her ache is, right? Her mother's absence. And later, while he's still sitting there, he's going to think back to that's when the narrative is going to let us know that he noted what she was looking at at that wedding, that he knew it wasn't about oh, she just wishes that she was getting married. No, what she was looking at was like a mother caressing a daughter's face. And that's when he he's almost like emotional when he's like, no, you're not okay. Yeah. And that's because he's not okay either. It's And it's sad to see how she, I mean, she's got a bit of like projection here, obviously. And it's sad to see how much, she's viewing this almost through a child's eyes because that's how she processed her mother's death, you know, when she was younger. And I think a lot of that, she hasn't, she holds on to a lot of anger, not specifically at her mother, but at the situation. And the one thing that she sees or that she assumes her mother could have helped was to, to stay healthy. That's all she needed to do for me to have a mother, you know, and it's, it's yeah. interesting how she grows through this as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's something that I don't think we end the story with like a complete picture, but there is, there is some, there is something to Haitian's perception from her childhood that perhaps there was, and, and you don't know if it's like, that's just what a child was thinking, or perhaps it was because, you know, obviously her family was not was financially strapped, right? Just based right. on her experience going to college. So there's a perception on her part that, you know, I don't think we as the audience ever really have sort of like that full objective narrative to check it against, but that there was perhaps something more her mother could have done medically to take care of herself, but because of cost chose not to. And yeah, that, that seems to be, hinted at in this episode perhaps but only in shots so yeah. there's not there's not that textual confirmation but it does kind of show when there's you know an over uh, a sorry a voiceover or whatever or just transitioning between scenes that it appears that may have been her mother's issue that she she could have gotten more help if they had the money yeah and so now there's a selfishness that's taking place here because wait, you, you do have the money and you're still not doing this? Like, I, then I can't do anything for you. Right. You're making bad decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's triggering, you know, all of her internal pain. Now, what I think is interesting is that, obviously, we have talked a lot of sort of the subtler interior journey that this episode hints that Chief Hong is at, but this hedgehog theory with respect to Heijin Bo Ra goes to see her. And already, listen, Heijin may be sort of the prickly hedgehog outsider, but not all adults let like a seven and eight-year-old come over and hang out to visit the hedgehog that they're taking care of. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, no. like, and, and kids, kids know instinctually who's, who's a jerk and who's not. They, uh, yep, they're like dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Dogs and kids, right? <laughs> they know. So Bo Ra articulates 
the hedgehog theory of hometown cha-cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, and I love that Shin Ha-un takes something that is like this, like, <laughs> that she can take things that are so ordinary and everyday and then make them, pr- transform them into something that is like this profound wisdom about life. That people are like, people can be like hedgehogs too. Mm-hmm. What Bo Ross says is, you know, once you form a bond with them, hedgehogs will lay their spikes down and let you pet them. You know, but but the the message there is they have to trust you first. Right. Then they'll then they'll let you in. And so Heijin's first reaction to this whole situation with Gamri is to kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like this, it's not quite lashing out, but she just kind of shuts down. And then she's just basically like, okay, well, then I'm not going to deal with this again because I've already been here with people who don't think that they should take care of themselves, right? So then she starts to make this connection that is rooted in empathy, the episode began with Heijin missing her mother. Gamri is this maternal figure in the town. In pain, like in her in her pain about her mother, this, is, this situation with Gamri triggers that. Especially seeing the mother send off her daughter after her wedding. Right. So this is already something where, you know, if you're going to talk about like a toothache or like a physical ache, it's already a little bit more painful. Then she goes into... To, you know, the visit with Gamri and Gamri is just sort of being like, no, it's not that I don't have the money. It's that I'm not going to spend it. She storms away from Chief Hong. And then she remembers as a little girl buying her mother's favorite food and her mother being sick, throwing up in the bathroom, unable to eat it. And when she's sitting in the restaurant with Misson eating squid, she's literally trying to imagine being Gamri chewing it. And it all, it, it's like she's literally trying to, in it, in empathy, put herself, she was in the car, saw that Gamri couldn't eat the, the snack that the grandmothers brought. She know, like, she's thinking about, okay, so if my teeth hurt, you know, I, I, my teeth are fine. This, this is actually hard to chew, right? Like she's physically trying to put herself in the shoes. I love the level, though, of denial that she's attempting to stay in <laughs> because she keeps asking me something like, oh, no, this is really hard, right? Like as if it's not cooked properly. It's not normally like this. This this can't be you know, the way that squid always is. She's trying so hard to stay in her thought process. Yeah. While at the same time, you know, she's every bite, she's just going, I am so wrong. Yeah. (laughs) And she's like imagining what it's like for this poor woman that can't eat her favorite food, right? (laughs) So she keeps thinking about all of the things that Chief Hong has said to her, right? Even if she disagrees with Chief Hong in the moment, Heijin usually continues to mull over what he has said, as he does. Right. He they're having the disagreement on the lighthouse and she's not willing to sort of do things sort of surreptitiously and let him pay for it and not tell Gamri. So they haven't come to a solution, but they both walk away from that conversation thinking about what the other one said. Mm -hmm. And despite her complaints about Chief Hong being nosy and crossing the line, I don't know many dentists 
that come to visit their patients at night at their home to try and convince them to have a treatment. And so Haitian, for somebody who complains about crossing the line a lot, she, part of her character journey is that part of being in a community means sometimes you're going to be nosy (laughs) and you're going to go over and try again. Yeah. And I think what what really stuck out to me is that as Heijin is going outside, she says, you know, I came to have a talk, but we just had dinner, which means she didn't bring it up the whole time. And she was just sitting there mm-hmm. enjoying the company of a maternal figure, which is kind of beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. Like, if you contrast how alone and sad she was standing in the city looking at that mother and daughter and that going back to quote unquote the boondocks that she didn't want to go back to. She is now sitting in this grandmother's home across from her from a table eating a home-cooked meal. Heijin's lonely life in the apartment involved a lot of takeout, remember? Mm -hmm. Like it's just this, there's that shot of the two of them in profile eating and it's just, it's so simple. And again, it's people connecting through like sharing a meal and it's filling a void for both of them because Gamri's family doesn't have time to eat with her and Heijin doesn't have a mother to eat with. And what struck me though, as the only thing that was kind of sad in that moment was because all that was shown in this scene was of course Gamry bragging on Chief Hong and how she was in a TV show and it was because he was able to read Chinese that you know she found out about her father that is the bulk of the conversation but when she initially gives Heijin the food she specifically points out how soft it is right and it made me a little sad because obviously if Gamry's constantly having to eat what she's cooking, that means she's haven't had to alter what she even makes. Right. Yeah. It goes, I, you know, I have to soak it in broth and it's the moisture, right? It, she's, mm. she's living even the meals she cooks around this chronic pain in her mouth, which all of the characters are doing, whether it's a physical or emotional ache, Right. Yes, right now their pain, every one of their pain is at a level where it is greatly affecting their lives. Yeah, exactly. What I love about that line from the car, you can't know your future until you know your history, is that it ties so beautifully with the video of the recorded show because she never knew, Gamry never knew what that document said about her father until the genius little boy, Dushik, was able to read it for her because he knew how to read Chinese characters. He knew how to read Chinese at a very young age. And so that that is like so elegant in that it picks up thematically with what Gamry was saying. Gamry wasn't wasn't actually like it came off a little bit like a lecture to Heijin, but it actually comes from personal experience. Like I didn't even know my own family's history until this little boy read it for me, right? But then also it's hinting at all of the history that Heijin doesn't know about Chief Hong. This is her first glimpse at this. She's seeing him literally in the past, right? That that television program is from two years ago at Gamry's house. And it's giving her a glimpse of all of the things that she doesn't know about him and all of the things that he can do. 
Right. He becomes a bit more intriguing. Yes. It's kind of like, it's adding to the flex of all the certifications. Yeah. Like, now, yeah. The, now the kid reads Chinese too? Like, my goodness, what, what is his deal? Yeah, right. And it also gives Heijin some idea of, you know, she was like, why are you doing this? Well, now she understands, like, truly, you know, he has been in Gamry's life. You know, Gamry has been in his life since he was a child. Mm-hmm. The... Conversation that they have outside on the front step where Heijin talks about, you know, she is connecting with Gamri about her physical pain of having an ache in your mouth that nobody can see Mm -hmm. with her emotional pain about her mother. And she's like, your favorite thing to eat is squid. And my mother's favorite thing to eat was the sausage. And she's connecting her she's connecting with her through their different but mutual pain and then she offers just to bring back what we were talking about in the last podcast about you know kind of different definitions of philanthropy or good acts Heijin offers Gamri her time she's like you have to pay for the materials but when it comes to the actual dental work Heijin's going to do that for free and Which also not common, not common, right? Is home is, visits, free care? No, none yeah, of this. No, which which we, you know, the only person, the only one in the only person in this show up until this point who knows that Heijin is this generous a person is Mison. When Mison is making fun of her for giving to charity, you know, charities, char- charitable organizations that is emotionally distant, right? Even when she's mm-hmm. lost her job, she's still keeping up with her monthly charitable donations. Now, Haitians, what we know, what Misan knew was always inside of her. It is now manifesting in doing things. This is the first time she's going to do something for somebody that she knows in her community. And it's going to go on and on and on for many people, right? It's also spot on for this to occur in the same episode that was all about how much money she makes or how Mm. much money everyone makes and the bragging over the status and the materials and everything. Totally. Dentists that are worried about making lots of money just so they can move back to Seoul don't give away free dental care. No. So what I love is that the two future most important women in Chief Hong's life sit there and agree, yes, he is very nosy. <laughs> in, but, in at least the English translation, Gamri first says, like her sentences, he is precious, but also very nosy. And Hajin says, I agree with you there. And I like to think, unbeknownst to her, she's agreeing to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then, just to tie it up, I think Chief Hong was already realizing that there's a lot about Hajin that he doesn't know. But Man, if you wanted to kick off some some feelings in Chief Hong, <laughs> it would be to go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that his beloved Gamri got the care that she needed. And so his face and the way he is lost in thought when he is at Gamri's side, helping her recover with the porridge and realizes that it was Heijin who made this all happen. And Gamri says, she is like ice on the outside, but inside there is a good heart. 
And he's just like so distracted. She's like, dude, are you going to get the porridge out or not? You know, like he's just like thinking through, God, I really got to grapple with like what I'm noticing and the little she's letting me in on and what, what I see like on the surface, right? Which is what he has been doing since episode one. But to hear it from as trusted and wise a source as Gamri and see what Heijin made happen that he on his own couldn't. Right and getting yeah, her- she's she is confirming the thoughts that he has had, and that's almost a bad thing because he he was hoping the the more he kept watching that she might prove him wrong. And Gamry's like, no, she's kind of amazing. She just she must have been through a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, no, I thought that too. Damn it. I'm not ready for this. Damn it. Now I'm gonna what about the feelings I'm trying to put in a box? What I also love about that line, she's like ice on the outside, is that that is imagery that the director is going to play with at the end of this episode and the end of the next episode. The end of this episode, it's the popsicle melting. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the next episode, it's the ice cube and the ice bucket shifting and melting. It's just one of the closing shots. So it's sort of, they're playing with all of these, whether it's like a hedgehog with spikes or ice melting, that is where we're at in Heijin's character journey. This tough exterior, seemingly standoffish, what is underneath, is a person with a really, really big heart. She just, because she's lost her mother, because of the way she was treated in university, because of her sort of distant relationship with her father. Why I love Heijin is it's like clear that she has always had all of this love inside of her and like nowhere to put it. Yeah. That's that amazing quote about grief. Grief is just love with nowhere to go. Yeah. And that's what it is. I mean, she obviously loved her mother. She loves her father and she has nowhere to, to put that. He won't accept it. And her mother's gone. Yeah. Which is why she's, you know, completely bonkers when she and Chief Hong are like finally admitting that they love each other. She's (laughs) like, Oh my God, I get to like show someone that I love them like all the time. I'm going to make lists. Like what are all the things we're going to do? All right. So the ice melting brings us to this scene at the end of the episode when the lights go out. The end of this episode is where I personally went from, wow, I'm really liking this show to, Oh no, now I'm obsessed. (laughs) And it's really for two, really for two reasons. I think this show excels at these quiet, almost like a play. It's just two characters talking. It's just the two of them in a room, quietly having a conversation. So that relies completely on acting and the writing. And it always feels natural, almost like we're being let in on an intimate moment of two real people talking, if that makes sense. I mean, this whole episode, actually, between what Heijin does for Gamri and what Chi Fong does both for Gamri and for Heijin, going above and beyond in being kind and doing things for other people. It's kind of... I I mean, for me, it's like one of the reasons why I love these two lead characters so much, right? They are the antithesis of the anti-hero. They are Mm -hmm. doing, they are selfless and go above and beyond doing things for other people. So 
It's funny though that they don't want anyone to know. Right. It's so always what that. I think don't- makes yeah. this like one of these, you know, the conversation after the lights go out so special is that we do get to see the thoughts of both parties that the other is not privy to. Mm-hmm. So when we're seeing the conversation, we're able to interpret it differently than the ones having it, which is, yeah. I love that. We're always let in on this, the way the show plays with point of view and when it gives us information, even throughout this episode, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it gives us piecemeal all of the things that Chief Hong noticed, usually after the scene has already occurred, right? So, right. So it let us make our own judgments about mm-hmm. what was happening. Yep. And then it allowed us to see it from a different perspective when we saw what he was actually thinking. And then we were like, oh, maybe we were wrong. Right. So he wasn't actually. I love a good, oh, maybe we were wrong. Yeah. Right. So if we piece together everything that we know and kind of go through this, do you want to have some ice cream with me scene? Chief Hong is, was night fishing. Like, again, Henry David Thoreau, who literally would fish at midnight and then write poetically about it. He is night fishing on those rocks. And then he, what we'll see is hilariously thought that there was like a leg in the water because the shoe, <laughs> it's like at first you think it's like a horror scene and then he's like oh my god no it's her freaking shoe like what were the chances right like the way this show plays with like uh fate and the elements right the ocean has literally brought back cinderella's shoe <laughs> and he, what what we don't know is that he has spent days after knowing what he what she did for Gamry, he has spent days researching on the internet how to restore a wet <laughs> shoe. I I just I beep, I freaking lost my mind at the end of this episode. Like Well, it's just like you said just a second ago that we always see the scene before we see what was behind it. So he's just like, go check the fuse box and he found it. And then he's like, oh, it was just in the street or whatever nonsense that he blows it off as when really it's been his project for days. Yeah, that's the thing. The thing that drives me, that makes me like want to throw a pillow joyfully is that when he walks in and it's a blackout, so you're are, there's already as soon as they open the door and there's like a blackout and her hair's wet there's like this sexual tension moment at the door like oh oh it's you oh it's you there's a there's <laughs> an electricity that yeah. we're not getting from the light ah, exactly exactly <laughs> but then the thing that's hilarious is he's like oh you don't have any candles and then he's like okay i'm gonna she's like he whips out a candle that he made <laughs> from scratch <laughs> like what and then she's like well, what else, what else do you have in that bag? Oh, I don't know. Your shoe that he restored <laughs> from the ocean. And like went on YouTube, watched tutorials, stuffed it with newspaper, dried it with a cool hair dryer, like multi-hour and days project. That's what else he has in the backpack, Asian. So all of that, when you rewatch it, you're like, oh my God, he's like literally the best boyfriend without being a boyfriend in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. But then they sit down. And, you know, I love sort of this, this end of this episode, but throughout, they kind of play with this metaphor or imagery of Chief Hong bringing light into Heijin's life. He gives her a candle 
At the end of the episode, the lights obviously go on when she puts both, when Cinderella has both her shoes on, but also at the end of episode nine, where both suitors are headed toward her to confess, she's focused on the street light, the street lamp that's been fixed because of him. So it's sort of like this imagery that the show like builds and builds and builds and kind of like weaves throughout, but they sit down and he had no idea that she took the hedgehog in. He's like, (laughs) oh my God, what is that? (laughs) And again, things that he didn't know, right? Heijin is the kind of person that takes in two kids in the village and takes care of their hedgehog. Again, not something most adults would do. And And then we are let in on two things that are pretty important. The first one He says out loud, you know, you and the hedgehog are both very similar. You're both spiky. (laughs) And I love the way that they pick up that thread from what Bo Ra said. And clearly, Chief Hong has been thinking a lot about what he knows and doesn't know about Heijin. But the great irony, of course, is so are you, sir. Yeah. This whole, is the epitome of takes one to know one. Uh-huh, right? Like the whole second half of this show is going to be Haitian navigating all of your spikes about not wanting to talk about your past. But then he says, hinting towards that, and again, will be picked up on talking to both of the children who own the hedgehog is when she says, you know, I was surprised you didn't take the hedgehog in. I don't take in anything that's alive. Mm. That's hard early on. I I know even, you know, back in episode one, they told, because she said, why don't you ask Chief Hong to take it? And they said, he already said no, which was, you know, that's surprising for his character. And then you get here saying, I don't take anything that's alive. And you're kind of, you know, really still don't, don't know what's going on. It made me a little bit uncomfortable because I was concerned about his status with animals. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know, like animals? Like I was, I was a little concerned there. So I do like to be able to go back and understand, oh, it, it's more of an emotional connection that you don't want to have versus you trying to tell me you don't like animals. Well, I- yeah, because what he says, what he says to Bora and Yi Jun later is because I don't like to say goodbye, mm. which is this. Uh, it's so simple in his, and so complicated. And so devastating because, Beep, when in his life has he loved someone and not lost them? No, I mean, there is no case whatsoever except for Gamri. And the only reason he didn't lose her was because he lost everything else. Yeah. He was done with her, essentially. I mean, right. Not in a mean way, but just, you know, I've moved on and I forgot kind of where it came from. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's so his emotional reluctance to embrace what he's feeling leading up to episode 10 when he finally gives in. But then later on to. He never quite, you know, we never question how he feels about Heijin. So even when he's pulling back about articulating a future or opening up about his past, he's still out loud saying, you're the love of my life, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why I, why this show is so special to me is because you can explore obstacles in a relationship without 
cracking the foundation. Right. And people are, are multifaceted. So you can have both. Yeah. But there's this, there is this tinge of, of sadness later on, even when he says, I love you out loud, because love has always gone hand in hand with death. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. And, you know, there's so many layers to it, right? There's always this, and even more simple than that, right? Even in this scene, she's like, I'm going back to Seoul. And he's like, right, right. You're going to make all your money. You're going to go back to Seoul. <laughs> and and it's this thread that goes through. I, I'm leaving. I'm here for a short time. This is about making money. I'm always heading back. They have a, a very awkward conversation where she's trying to talk about the future. And he's like, right, because I guess you still want to move back, right? And And, you know- there was probably a much more dramatic version of this show where perhaps Haitian's life would have been at risk. But instead, it's it's a much more mundane, is she going to leave him in a different way, mm-hmm. right? Where she decides to stay. And that's like, I mean, he just is like, oh my God, you're, I'm not going to lose someone, right? Like you're, but, but so there's like all of this, you know, it's one line. I don't take things in that are alive, but it's such a, if we're going to talk about signposts for where characters' arcs are at, that's where Chief Hong is at. He is trying to keep her out, even while he is finding it on a day-to-day basis very hard to do that. Right, right. Because she's actually going to be the first thing that he takes in that's alive Uh, for a very long, or, you know, for a very long time. Yeah, even letting her stay at his house, right? Like, you know, I mean, he's gonna he's gonna take her in literally into his home many like three times <laughs> and figuratively into his life. Yeah. Sometimes by choice, sometimes not so much. <laughs> yeah, sometimes just passing out drunk, but yeah. The other thing that I love is that if the last episode was all about Heijin making a heartfelt apology. His apology is completely unsolicited and is straightforward and is simple and complete. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I've been harsh when I didn't know much about you. I misjudged you. Flat out. Like this man, as we will see as it goes on, knows how to apologize. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and it's also personal. Not that he gets personal, but it's personal in the sense of, you know, when she had to apologize it was this whole ordeal here. Like you said, she's not asking for it though. She knows that he's been, you know, kind of judging her or treating her in such a way. He takes the initiative to just stand up and say, I was wrong. And, you know, essentially I I intend to do better in the future. And he had no stake and no reason to necessarily do that. No, but you know, just like, just like she was so worked up and bothered about what he thought about the way she talked to, to Gamry, he he needs to say this to her, right? Like sure. they both think about what the other one thinks about each other and they need to like deal with it. <laughs> Even if they're not really dealing with sort of the central thing that's going on, which is there's a lot of sexual tension in <laughs> eating popsicles at night scene. There's popsicles melting. Yeah. <laughs> outside of the romance aspect, they actually are very mature with each other. Yes. But, you know, because that's thrown in there a little bit, they have their moments of, <laughs> of middle school 
level emotionality. Yeah, idiots in love. But yeah, there's like, I love the way that this director is able to take very simple things like a popsicle in a hand and someone reaching over. You've got that like, you know, it's one of the like foundations of building romantic tension is hands touching, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, entirely unnecessary. Right, right. Because they played with it with the receipt, like, ooh, we're going to do this. Give me your hand. At this time, unnecessary, unsolicited, freaking adorable. Yeah. And and taking care. She's Mm -hmm. dripping popsicle all over the – she's dripping it all over the pillow. And he's looking out for her. And I love the way the director always puts us in Heijin's point of view. The way he close – like, the way the camera has a close-up on her eyes. When it comes to these moments of – physical intimacy the director always has her has us very squarely in her point of view like when his hands are on her face when his hand is on her forehead when his hand touches his like the director is focusing on the woman and her reaction to it which is really like refreshing yeah it's really interesting but all right can you please break down for me this epic (laughs) <laughs> epic move of leaving the shoe i mean uh-huh. <laughs> i'm like looking and being like when did he do that <laughs> she's immediately just like he tells her to check the fuse box but then obviously he goes to the uh closet i, d- I mean I- <laughs> there's just- some- this is what's kind of great about it Okay, first of all, it's it's beautiful. It's super romantic. We find out later what he did with it. I mean, it's all just, you know, swoon. But what I think is kind of cool about it is not only did he dismiss it, like I said earlier, like, oh, it was just in the street. He also didn't make a thing out of giving it to her. Mm-hmm. He allowed it to just be what it was. He wasn't looking for you know, some sort of massive praise, or I'm sure she would like freak out and accidentally hug him. Like there's another version of that, you know, that takes it too far and go not too far per se, but it's just very awkward and, and kind of puts them in a different position, but it wasn't about him getting credit for it. It was about him finding something that he knew that she loved and returning it to her without reward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've talked before about how it's also keeping his distance, but what he did was in addition to everything he did to restore the shoe, he then basically creates this magical moment, right? He hides it as a surprise Mm -hmm. and then he leaves and then tells her to go look for it, right? And then he's riding his bicycle away and he's just like, yeah, I've like found it in the street, right? So he's like not going to take credit. And yet the way the director then just like goes for it is Cinderella has her shoe on. It lights up. Her face is lit up smiling. His face is lit up smiling (laughs) as he drives the bicycle away. He's doing kind of that nervous thing, touching his throat like, oh God, feelings. Like, I mean, it's just basically... This series of kind and thoughtful acts that creates magic in the everyday world. And the lights just happen to come on at that moment, right? There's oh, no, yes. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. But again, again, it is this 
for a show that is so grounded in reality and the and the everyday lives of people, it is through the sort of cinematography is showing us how transformative kind acts can be that they can bring magic into your everyday life. And really what happened was a guy saw a shoe, restored it, and returned it to her. It was kindness, right? But kindness right. can be transformative and magical. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there's no version of a scene like this where, you know, the lights were out that they don't come back on at the conclusion of it, but there are so many ways for it to be done. And this was muted in such a way that it was all the more meaningful. Yeah. And it's also sort of just picking up on what we were saying before, like whether it is the candle or the street lamp or Heijin, mom arming, putting the seat down, all of the things that these two people, big and small, are going to do for one another. It is looking out for one another and taking care of one another. That is what literally brings light back into these very two very lonely people who have these very deep aches that brings light back into their life. Yeah. The, the world is on dim right now. Yeah. I mean, he wakes up in the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. In a nightmare. His nightmares often are playing with sort of dark and light. So the director plays with sort of dark and light as sort of symbols for like what are – what are dark times, both in pain and loss in our lives, and and when connecting with others brings light into our lives. So it's just and how those things exist simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Ah, good stuff. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so that closes out episode three. Next time we're going to have Emma B. And if you are listening and you have seen some fantastic edits, not only for hometown cha cha cha, there was one edit that went really viral, like overnight <laughs> of Chief Hong. Emma B is sort of the extraordinaire uh, fangirl video editor. She loves this show and she's going to be joining us for for episode four and the uh, drunken night to remember. Until then, we hope that you too can lay down your spikes. We'll see you soon.